So what we do here at Acts Reformed Church, we exposit God's word, meaning we go through a book of the Bible. We start uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we go through it. Right now we're going through the book of Romans. And we made our way through chapter 1 and 2. We are now in the midst of chapter 3. Today's passage that we're going to read and learn from is from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 through verse 20. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word as we read Acts, uh, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9 through 20. The infallible word of God reads as follows. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that this morning your Holy Spirit may give us understanding to keep an attitude of awe and reverence of a quiet soul before you. Lord, help us to understand that apart from Jesus, we are not and cannot be righteous. Thank you for the good news that Jesus is the righteous Savior that we desperately need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I've titled, I've titled today's sermon, Paul's Closing Statement Against the Jew and the Gentile. In the book of Romans thus far, Paul is introducing what he's going to teach about the gospel, about the good news. But before he gets to that portion that he's going to start expounding upon God's grace and God's mercy and faith in Christ, before Paul introduces that, first, he has embarked in this rhetorical exercise of ensuring that his hearers, both Jews and Gentiles, realize that one, there is nothing inherently good in them because of their nationality, because of their tradition, because of where they grew up. And secondly, that God will be impartial when judging all humanity. Just as the book of Hebrews says that it is appointed for men all to die once, and then after that comes the judgment. So Paul is saying in that judgment, God will not be showing partiality to anyone because of 
who you belong to in, in, in ethnicity or what family you were part of. God will be impartial. So what is Paul intent in this portion of the book of Romans? I try to always kind of give a statement of purpose, right? What is it? Paul gives sort of a closing statement as a prosecution attorney would give before they go and deliberate for a verdict. The difference, however, is that upon this closing statement, Paul not only gives the convicting closing statement or convincing statement, but also carries the verdict with it, right? There is no deliberating. Paul is saying this is the closing case and this is the verdict. You all are guilty. And the reason why Paul is so certain of that is because Paul is pointing to the word of God to say, God says that you are guilty. God says that he will show no partiality and therefore the verdict, if left to the own devices of humanity, humanity, mankind, everyone ever born is guilty before God. So if you missed our sermon series thus far, you just caught up. We're right there. So Paul's point is that he cannot proceed to expound upon the gospel until his hearers, he's writing to the church at Rome, understand that this verdict is a guilty verdict. And therefore, if they don't understand that the gospel is not going to make any sense to them or they will not fully appreciate it. To illustrate that, picture the following. Imagine that a man goes to the doctor after about a month of experiencing um, a little bit of chest pain, uneasy breathing, easily tired, maybe a little bit dizzy. And after doing some tests and some lab work, the doctor realizes that the patient has severe coronary artery disease, CAD, CAD. Now this is the leading cause of death in the US. Okay, leading cause of death. And the doctor knows that if this patient goes untreated, the patient is at a very high risk of heart complications and may die anytime, any day, especially since the symptoms are increasing. Would this doctor be a good physician if instead of breaking the bad news to the patient and encouraging him and suggesting a method of treatment, if instead of doing that, the doctor says, you know what, just try to now overdo yourself, try to drink a little bit more water, and don't do too much physical activity, just take it, take it easy. Would that be a good doctor? The answer is obvious, no. In like manner, Paul needs to deliver the bad verdict, the guilty verdict, to his listeners. And remember, this is a church, right? And within the church, there will be people who also come and visit and be from the outside. So Paul is saying to the church at Rome, make no mistake, all humankind has a guilty verdict before God. And the only treatment available for that spiritual Term, uh, terminal disease, which is sin, the only treatment available is the gospel. The natural inclination of our humanity is that we want to make ourselves look a little bit better than my neighbor. Like, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like fill in the blank, right? And when we have that mentality, 
when we think that we are not as bad as we could be and that we're okay, we are already on the wrong side when it comes to having or receiving favor from God. Proverbs 14.12 illustrates that very succinctly. It says, There is a way that seems right to men, but its end is the way of death. Meaning, I can be exposed to the hearing of the gospel. I can know about God. I can know about his attributes. But yet, I have a hesitation to submit to the Lordship of Christ. All of us have that tendency innately in us, right? And scripture tells us that if that's the way that seems right to us, in the end will be the way of eternal death. So that should be kept in mind as we study today's passage. So then Paul's closing statement to his hearers consists of three main ideas. We're going to see them as follows. First, that man's nature and reason is corrupted. Secondly, that man's character and behavior attest are a testimony to that corruption. And thirdly, that man's justification is out of reach for the human being. All right, so let us take a look at the first point. Man's nature and reason has been corrupted. Romans 3.9 reads, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul in essence has given a quick summary of everything that he's argued up to this point. We look back to Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. I'll paraphrase it, paraphrase it as follows. He says, then what advantage does the Jew have, right? And then he proceeds to say, much, much in every way. So then, did the Jewish folks have any advantage? The answer is yes. In what sense? They had the oracles of God. They had the instruction of God. They were God's covenant people. So they had a better start, if you will, right, than, than the rest of humanity that did not have that. But collectively... What did the Jewish folks do with what was provided to them in that privilege? What did they do with it? Did they end it up being better off? Paul's answer is no. Even though they had the privilege of being God's people, collectively as a people, the Jewish folks ended up not being better off overall. Because, as Paul will expound and has been trying to tell them, they didn't use that advantage for their well-being. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. They did not see how the promises of the Old Testament became fulfilled in Christ. And this is why Paul had arguments, debates, refuting the Jewish folks, both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Okay? So then the Jewish folks are engaged with this Rejection of the message of Paul, like Paul was such a zealous Pharisee and, and Jew. How could he all of a sudden turn and now proclaiming what they thought was a different message? And the main idea of that message, as Paul is getting started to expound on that, is that all of you are guilty. Listen to me, right? And there was the problem of the rejection of Paul's message. So that's Paul's main idea. He wants to make them know that 
Although they had an advantage, they blew it. And now they're in the same boat as with all the Gentiles. They're under condemnation. So then let's move on to Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. The next portion of our text. It says, as it is written. Now Paul is quoting. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. In this section, Paul uses a literary method known to rabbis in which they would string together snippets of Old Testament scripture and then put their thought together by quoting from the Old Testament. They call it a string of pearls, like little snippets of truth from the Old Testament to communicate the idea. This is the literary method Paul used there. And the first quote comes from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and the main points are as follows. First, that man has a corrupt nature, meaning in our own human merit, no one is righteous before God. No one. Now, what does righteous mean? For example, my kids could obey to clean up the room and to behave during service. And by that, if they do, they're righteous before their dad, right? They, they did right. So righteousness before someone is to have a favorable approval status, right? Now before God, to be righteous before God means to have a favorable status before God and hence being accepted by God. And Paul says, no one is, nobody. The default position of every human being is that they are rejected by God. Now that is pretty, that's pretty crucial, right? That's pretty dramatic. Like, what do you mean? Like God is love? God loves everybody? <clears throat> love is one of God's attributes. The attribute of God that is expanded up on the scriptures is that he is holy, holy, holy. And because our reason has been corrupted by the fall, by sin, our mind and our heart are far from God. So a corrupt nature from the get-go. And then corrupted reason. On our own human reasoning, we neither understand the things of God, nor can we genuinely seek for God. Rather, as the text says, we have gone astray as a wayward sheep that is just headed for the cliff. That's the picture that the scripture teaches us as human beings left to our own devices and our own judgment. 1 Corinthians 2.14 puts it this way. The natural person, meaning every person that's born, that's your condition, I could say, out of the box. The natural person does not accept the things of the, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, the natural man, not only far from God, he doesn't care about God, and even if he, when he hears about God, his foolishness to him or her. For all of us here, that was either true at some point, or it is true right now. Now the emphasis that Paul puts is that that's everyone's default condition. Now, an objection could be made, like, what do you mean nobody's good? I mean, there's, you know, a lot of foundations that give to charity, a lot of... Um, 
organizations that treat kids that are ill, et cetera, et cetera. How can that not be good? And the answer is it is good, right? At a humanly, um, speaking humanly, it is good. And we should be engaged in those uh, actions, in those causes. We should be seeking for the well-being of our, of our neighbor. And that's part of God's common grace. He allows us to have a conviction to help, to have a conviction to give, to have an, a conviction to volunteer. However, even if we were to do as much as we can and sacrifice even our lives for a good cause, the problem of our sin before God still remains. And in that context, Paul says, no one is righteous and no one can do good in order to attain that righteous status before God. Okay, so hence, the first point that means nature and reason has been corrupted is claimed by Paul. Secondly, because of that corruption, men's character and behavior are proof of that corruption. One thing would be to say, yeah, well, Paul's saying that everyone is corrupt, but prove it. And basically, Paul says, yeah, okay. Verses 13 through 18. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And again, this is referenced in a string of snippets from the Old Testament. From Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36 in that order. Now, the beauty about quoting scripture when you're arguing with, with a person, whether religious or not, because everybody has presuppositions, is that Paul is quoting to them scripture that should be familiar to them. Right? So that's the advantage of them not having a way to rebut what Paul is saying. So then in this passage, we see that the character and behavior that each of us engages in is a result of what we have embraced as a worldview. We act, we do, we do not do according to what we think and what our convictions are. And the character of mankind by default is corrupt. Paul says that they have a throat that is an open grave. This has several implications. The speech that comes out of a person is corrupt and dishonorable. An open grave in, in, implies not only ceremonial uncleanness, right? because in the Jewish culture, it is extremely unclean to be associated with a dead body or with a grave. And it gives an unpleasant smell. It gives unpleasant smell, and it also is ready to receive the dead. And the scripture says that Paul is quoting those are like the throats of men, what comes out of men. Because a person of, speaks according to what is in their heart. Now we can guard our, our mouth and our speech as much as we, and we should, we should be wise. But if pushed enough, our true self will come out. 
For some of us, it doesn't take much. I was telling some brothers the other day that I was literally singing a hymn, driving. Somebody abruptly cut me off. And that hymn went to the wayside. Right? My true nature comes out. The Lord Jesus put it this way in Matthew 12, verse 34. When speaking to the religious hypocrites, it says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, what is really in us will come out during times of being pressed. So then the behavior of mankind is by default to pursue unrighteousness. The text says that there is shedding of blood. There is an inclination to engage in violence. Not righteous violence, right? Because... We are called to protect, to defend, to stand up for what is right. And sometimes that does involve violence. Christianity is not passive. However, the natural intent of our hearts in a default mode is to defend and to act upon self-interest and selfish motives, even if it gets to the point of war and violence. So this corrupt behavior and character has one end. The text says it ends in ruin, misery, and lack of peace. So in one sense, a person who does not pursue God and continuously engaging in a sinful lifestyle will never be filled. Right? We'll need to do it over and over and over and over because there's no fulfillment. And it will lead to misery, depression, anxiety. But in another sense, one could say, well, I know such and such that they have no interest for God. They're not a Christian, and they seem to be living it up. I assure you, they don't seem unhappy. Well, the Bible is clear that even those people that seem to have it all together and be happy in a lifestyle of sin, that will not be the case at the end of their life when they come before their maker in judgment and hence the statement remains true will lead to misery and a lack of peace to ruin and then the text says that there is no fear of God in this corrupt nature this is a, this basically the last step of disobedience no fear of God what does that mean well I put it this way the first step of having no fear of God, the first step of having no fear of God begins with disobedience as a child. So my dear children here present, remember this. If you are continuously disobedient to your parents, that is a sign that ultimately you will have no fear of God, no regard for authority, no regard for the authority of God, ultimately. So the fear of God, or having no fear of God, is no acknowledgement to God, His Word, disregarding the power and authority of God, and disregarding the fact that everyone will have to give an account to God upon death. No fear of God. What would be the opposite side then of these corrupt behaviors of having no fear of God? 
Well, let us examine that briefly. Scripture used the phrase that those who fear God or someone who is a God-fearer in Scripture is always a reference only to the people of God, only to believers. It depicts reverence, respect, an attitude of thanksgiving, a willingness to submit to God's word and his will. And it produces a life of joy. As we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And further says here, a reference I have from Psalm 16, verse 11. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Whatever thrills or pleasures or vices we are engaging in in order to fulfill ourselves, Scripture makes it clear what we really are looking after is the fulfillment that only God can give us. Another example of the opposite of that corrupt nature is that the speech of those who know God should be reverent speech, should be seasoned, should be wise speech. Among other things, we are told that our speech should reflect the opposite of the old corrupt nature. James chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says, warning whether, right, he's, uh, James there is warning that cursings and blessings cannot come from the same mouth. It says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Right, the answer is obvious, no. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. One more reference, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we have the corrupt nature and what comes out of it. And then scripture tells us, like the commercial, right? don't do that, do this. The instruction in scripture then gives us the instruction of what to do, of what to do right. Now, if we are honest, those exhortations to have good speech, to have seasoned speech, to be wise and use wisdom in our speech, are ultimately impossible to follow. Then we may say, then what's the point? Then we're, we're, in, we're in bad shape. And the reason is that temporarily, we can really be on our guard not to blow up, not to speak evil of someone or to someone. But it's only, this is the key, it will be only the regenerate mind and heart, that is the transformed mind and heart, that will ultimately be able to continuously seek God, seek, to seek His strength in order for us to have the ability to constantly obey, to constantly repent when we fail. And that is what the scripture calls us to. Having such behavior, such leaving behind of the corrupt nature is the result of being a child of God, of being a Christian, and not the attempt 
to change our behavior in order to be Christians. No. And that leads to our third point. That because it is the result of being a child of God, it's not something we can do, men's justification is therefore out of the human reach, is not attainable by human merit. So then we come to the last two verses of our text today. Verses 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law come, comes knowledge of sin. So we talked about what righteousness before God was, right? It's a legal declaration that God says, this person has my approval. They are not guilty. That's being justified before God. I mean, that's, yes, being justified before God, being righteous. Being righteous is being accepted by God. Now, justification is what I just described, a legal declaration of innocence before God, before the ultimate judge. So what is the result then of justification, of being righteous, of being justified before God? That although we are not perfect, we are ones whose heart and mind has repented. We have turned around and now acknowledge God, follow God, continuously repent so that God can cause us to be more and more like Jesus. So then a person, when he or she commits sin as a Christian, the Holy Spirit grieves the heart of that person so that we can turn and be reconciled to God. So the question for us is, are we bothered by our sin? I mean, we could feel bad that we did something bad, but are we grieved when we sin to the point that we need to confess to God and even to our brothers and sisters? If we are not bothered by our sin, then it's a red flag. So then the law does several things. Paul talks the law of God. First, the law of God makes demands that no human being can ever meet on their own. One example would be to ask ourselves, have I ever spoken evil of someone? Have I ever bad-mouthed anyone behind their back? Answer that question in your mind. Now, if your question is no, not only is that not true, but now you're a liar too. Right? That's just one small example of how we fail, right? And we fall right in line when Paul says no one is righteous. Our own conscience convicts us. So it makes demands that no one can meet. Secondly, the law shuts people up, right? So that every mouth may be stopped. How so? In what sense? Well, when confronted against the demands that the perfection of God's law puts on us, it shuts us up. Like, I have nothing to say. The accusation is true. And this is one of the key aspects of Christianity. That Jesus confronts us with the reality and the graveness of our sin, of our rebelliousness. 
in doing so, there's no room to make the claim of any variation that would say, well, God will basically accept me because I'm not as evil as, again, fill in the blank. No, if we are anywhere near that train of thought, you are lost, my friend. And that is not the right path. That is the path that may seem right to you, but in the end is the way of death. And therefore, the first step then in being forgiven by God and being a true Christian is by owning, by admitting that indeed God's word is true and I have nothing right, nothing good in me, in and of, in and of myself. To come to God, then we see the law of God, we see his holiness, and we should be left with only one and one option only. Admit, our mouth is stopped, and then seek forgiveness. There's no room in Christianity, in true Christianity, for self-righteousness or self-glory before God. None. Because the throne of the one who is seated on that, that has no fault, that has no sin, is already taken. It is not for me, and it is not for you. So then the demand of the perfection of God's law should not lead us to despair. Okay? Now, we should understand the bad news, but we shouldn't stay there. That's not the point that Paul is taking us to. Rather, it should lead us to desperately look outside of us, outside of any human resource, for help. We are to look for Jesus, for the perfect one. Because Jesus met all the requirements of the law that God demands and for which no one will be left to be off the hook. Jesus is the unique person in history who was born under the law. We are told in Galatians 4.4 that he was born under the law. And elsewhere we are told that Jesus was also without sin. First Peter and Hebrews 4, it says that he was, he was born under the law and then he committed no sin. So Jesus is the one who meets the qualifications of what God fully requires. And then Paul says that through the law comes what? Righteousness? Justification? No, it says comes knowledge of sin. Through the law we should realize, wow, yeah, I can do it cannot do it so through the law does not bring justification but brings the knowledge of sin it should bring us a realization that I am in trouble so the justification of man then that all of us are in need of is the need for God to see us as his friend rather than as an enemy. The need for God to see you as righteous instead of unrighteous. And it is something that you cannot and will not attain with your own merit or with a little bit of Jesus, with a little bit of church, with a little bit of prayer. No. It is by complete submission to the Lordship of Christ by faith through his grace. Because by the works of the law, no human being 
will be justified before God. So I have three quick reflections for today in closing. As we read this text, then, we need to realize, first of all, that God's guilty verdict of mankind was true then, and it is true today. If we don't understand the weight of that guilty verdict of being condemned before God to, due to our sin, then we will not appreciate the value of the offer of the defense attorney, if you will, that is being made to us by Jesus being our advocate. Secondly, Paul is writing these things to a church. Remember that, right? This is not for people primarily who are outside of God. No, this is for the people of God. So for the Christian then, it's a reminder of what God has done in Christ to reach us, to save us. We were never righteous on our own merits. So remember, Christian, you are not saved by following rules nor self-imposed traditions. No, you are saved by grace through faith. And for the non-Christian, your verdict remains as guilty before God this very day. And there's nothing you can do to change that decree. And therefore, the call to you would be to trust in Christ. Confess your sins to Him. Repent. Turn away from your current lifestyle. Whether it's indifference, moralism, false spirituality, or even false Christianity. And rather, trust, trust in Christ for your salvation. And thirdly, recognize the severity of a guilty verdict. I recently went to court because I got a ticket for looking at my phone, right? When I read the ticket, it says, the people of the state of California against Gerardo Emanuel Cisneros. Like, wow, people, that's, that's a lot of people. Like, I don't even think they care. They're doing it themselves, as a matter of fact, right? Why do I say that? My friends, each of us has a ticket pending, if you will, that is not from the people of the state of California, but it is from God Almighty against, put your name right there. Realize the heaviness of that charge, which is already proven to be a verdict. And that should lead to our excuses, our mouth, our justification for ourselves to be stopped. So has our mouth be stopped? Do we have an attitude of thanksgiving because God has been so good to us? Because if that is not the case, then we're, starting to, we're still trying to self-justify our sin and ourselves. It's a losing battle. You lost already. So may we be called this morning to acknowledge the bad news of a guilty verdict of sin upon our lives and settle, if you will, outside of court before going before the judge. May Jesus Christ be our advocate. May he be your advocate. Do not wait to go in before the judge when he calls you out of this world because you will have a guilty verdict that will crush you with the righteous wrath of God. I will close with this quote, with this quote from the great George Whitfield. It says, True conversion means turning not only from sin, but also from depending on self-made righteousness. 
Those who trust in their own righteousness for conversion hide behind their own good works. This is the reason that self-righteous people are so angry with gospel preachers. Because the gospel does not spare those who will not submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit this morning truly convict us of sin. Of the truth that indeed... There is no one righteous, no, not one, not even me, not even anyone here or anyone watching. Lord Jesus, you came to this world to live the perfect life that we cannot live. You died the death that we deserve. And because of the grave that could not hold you back, you rose again. It's a confirmation that everything you preached and everything that's written about you is true. May you make that impression in our minds and hearts today that we may believe. In Jesus' name, amen.